Okay, so if you'd like, you can be turning um, to Psalm 111. Um, we're going to be continuing our discussions throughout the, um, the Psalms here this morning. And um, it's uh, a Psalm of praise. Um, and uh, so I'm excited to talk about praising God. Kind of got it, picked a, uh, a home run passage for myself. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to thank Harvey for um, the last two weeks um, of preaching. Um, I think we found out on a, a Saturday or something like this that Lee was going to be leaving on Tuesday um, of the following week, and I thought, oh, wow, what are we going to do? And uh, so I want to thank Harvey for, on very short notice, uh, preparing those sermons. So we're thankful for your retirement, Harv. Um, and that you, you had some time, um, even though I hear you're busy. So um, I want to just publicly thank, thank you, Harvey, for that. Okay, um, so without further ado, let's go ahead and read Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright and in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all those who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the, works of his, uh, the power of his works, in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All of his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All of those who practice it, namely the fear of the Lord, have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Okay, so I want to give you some, uh, some context. So, um, and unfortunately, it's not going to be much. Uh, we have no idea who wrote this psalm. Um, you know, some of the psalms, they're a psalm of David or a, a psalm of Asaph or Moses, or, or this one is uh, unnamed, okay? So we don't know who wrote it. Um, there's no indicators in the psalm of when this person lived or um, uh, what he was like, but we do know a few things. Uh, one, he was gifted poetically, okay? So this, this poem, this psalm forms an acrostic, so each subsequent line uses the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, so he's a little witty, I guess we could say. Um, and, and he's been completely struck with the works of God. Okay? I don't know when the last time you sat down and wrote a poem about God. But this guy was struck with something that God did, or some things that God had done. And sat down and wrote actually two psalms at least. Uh, uh, psalm 112 is very, very similar um, and is probably like a sister psalm that was written together with Psalm 111. So we know those two things. He's smart, or witty, or clever, and he's just amazed 
with the works of God, and it results in praise. So it's my hope today that as we study this psalm, we'll better understand the relationship of God's works and the praise of him, which I, I think this psalm beautifully demonstrates. I, I believe the main in, idea infused in this psalm is that as we experience heartfelt worship of God most deeply, it's when we're cherishing his works most deeply. Now, I'm not saying that we can only cherish or worship God uh, by cherishing his works. That would leave out worshiping God for his nature and his character. But I'm not saying that, but I believe we can best worship God when we are most deeply cherishing his works. So, if you've come today feeling dry or bored with God, unable to connect with the songs that we're singing or the communion that we just had, um, I want to challenge you to hear from God's word this morning and have it be bread for your soul and kindling for your joy. So, let's dive in. So, uh, Psalm uh, 111 is comprised of three sections. They're very lopsided, okay? So, the first section is verse 1, okay? The second section is verses 2 through 9, and the last section is verse 10, okay? So, more like bookends. Uh, the first section, this first verse, is a call to praise God for his mighty works, okay? Then the writer, the hymnist, fills in the next eight verses with a declaration of God's greatness in his works, and then finally he bookends it with a response to those great works. So let's look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. So we're going to look at two aspects of praise here, and that is personal praise and public praise. The writer begins by calling all people to personal praise of God. Praise the Lord, you'll notice in your, in your uh, scriptures, it's either translated praise the Lord with all capital L-O-R-D, or it's translated hallelujah. Okay? Hallelujah is um, the Hebrew for praise Yahweh. Okay? So you can just see hallelujah, yah is that, and Yahweh, it's just a, a shortened abbreviation for Yahweh. So praise the Lord. We, we sang, I don't know if you caught this, we sang hallelujah or hallelujah, which is the Englishized uh, uh, version of that. We sang that like 18 times. Well done. You picked the right word, uh, Nate. Um, so we, 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 we have already encountered this word in our worship this morning. It's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a call to praise Yahweh. And Yahweh is Hebrew for the self-existing one. You might remember that Moses encountered Yahweh in the fiery burning bush that wasn't consumed. And it was the first revelation of Yahweh as the self-existent one, okay? And the idea there is the bush does not, is not consumed and it needs no fuel. The fire needs no fuel. It doesn't need the bush to burn, okay? So it's a, it's a beautiful picture of God is the self-existing one needing no input from anyone else and only outputting all of his greatness and his glory, okay? So this is a call, praise the Lord, a call to praise that great self-existing Yahweh. Okay. Um, so, okay, 
So, in our Christian experience, okay, as we do life together here, uh, some of us, uh, you know, might throw out uh, hallelujah or praise the Lord a little bit flippantly, okay? Or we might even say it and not act upon it, okay? That's, that's the beauty of, of singing hallelujah. It's, it's easier to do. Um, you're reminded of it as soon as you say it. Um, but uh, I don't know if you this is Olympic season, right? I don't know if you guys remember, but in the 2000 games, in the opening ceremony, there was a, it was a beautiful opening ceremony, and there was this one guy who went out in the middle of the stadium, and he sings a song, and it's called, I don't know what the song's called, but it's, I think it's called the Hallelujah Song, um, and it talks about David strumming on his lute or whatever, and he does the fourth, the fifth, the minor something, and, um, and, and there's a refrain, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, okay. That was terrible. But um, there's this refrain, and it's just, and, 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 and he must have sang hallelujah, I don't know, 30 times throughout the song. And I remember thinking of this, this stadium is packed, and there's a beautiful wide-angle cameras of, of all the people listening to this guy. But how many people have a clue what this guy is asking them to do? And, and I think as we become familiarized and maybe desensitized to this call to worship, this, this hallelujah, this praise the Lord, the more times we hear that phrase, and the more times we interact with it without acting upon it and actually praising the Lord, we fall into a, a danger of using it vainly, okay? Using that call to worship vainly. So as a church... I want us to remember that the words that you speak have meaning. And if somebody at work says, hallelujah, well, maybe start praising the Lord right, right then and there. Um, and they're going to like, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm doing what you asked me to do, okay? There, there is a, a real call to worship here, to worship the amazing, self-existing God of all creation, So, um, so let me let me tamper, uh, temper my rant there. Um, I'm not suggesting that we, we we shouldn't use the phrase "Hallelujah" or "Praise the Lord." Okay, if if you come out of the sermon today with that idea that oh, I shouldn't say that because I might be using it vainly, um, God would judge me for that. So don't don't stop using that phrase. Continue using that phrase, continue encouraging people to praise the Lord, but do so meaningfully and genuinely. Okay? So, it's a call to personal praise, and it's also a call to public praise. Okay? So, where does he say he's going to pr praise God? So, the, the psalmist says, I will praise the Lord in the congregation, in the assembly of the upright. Okay? So, this is what I love about the psalmist, he says, praise the Lord, and he doesn't just walk away from the situation. He goes ahead and he, he praises the Lord himself, okay? And he does so in the middle of everyone, okay? I, I, and I, I love this picture um, because it points to so many uh, uh, realities that we see in the Bible. Think of, think of um, uh, Jesus when he gives the parables of the lost things, because you have like the 10th the lost coin and the 100th lost sheep and the, 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 the losing of the second son to the, to the father. 
And, and what happens each time that the person finds what they've lost? Well, they, they call all their friends around and they say, come celebrate with me. What was once lost is now found and I just want to share my delight with you. Okay? And so this, this, this inviting others in the celebration, I think, is seminal to what the psalmist is doing. Okay, so he is truly enamored. We don't know what it was or what things he was enamored with. But he delighted in sharing that discovery with others. And he wanted to communicate that delight with them. I think C.S. Lewis uh, helps give some light as to what kind of paradigm was occurring here. He says, um, I think, this is Lewis, I think we delight in praise uh, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. And when, when C.S. Lewis is here is using the word praise, he means like this public enjoyment of delight. Okay? Praise is enjoyment's appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It is frustrating. Some of you might, might have experienced this. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people you're with don't care for it. Any, they, they care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. Or to hear a good joke and find, that no, one, um, uh, find no one to share it with. Okay? It's the same kind of thing. Have you ever like... This has happened to me. Um, I'm a cloud lover. Um, have you ever been like struck with something like a cloud and been like, oh my goodness, that is amazing. And the other people are like, yeah, I've, I've seen that before. <laughs> it's like happens every day. Sun goes up, lights the clouds up, goes down, done. We all have been given particular delights. That's, that's why the body is wonderful. We've all been given lights into different delights of God, okay? And so it's a bummer when you, like, try to share one of those delights and, like, the person is, oh, okay. Um, but it is, on the flip side, it's just an, a, a delightful feeling and the consummation of it when you express that delight with somebody else and they're like, yeah, it was awesome. You just feel the, the expressed joy together consummates this feeling that you've got inside okay and so it's quite natural here for the psalmist to move from personal worship i will praise god in the assembly he wants to share his delight with everybody particularly those who are upright okay who get the ideas that are spinning his brain uh Lene and I and Elsa were at Piata this week, and I don't, well, I guess not few of you are where we are, but anyhow, there was an amazing rainbow that happened, I don't know, Thursday, um, uh, downtown. It was the biggest rainbow I have ever seen. It had the colors, every single one, right there, um, and it went from cloud to cloud. It was almost like you see in the, like, the little Hallmark cards. It was, it was kind of weird, um, but it was that amazing. And uh, Elsa has never seen a rainbow before. 
So we were in Piata, and uh, these folks start pulling up the blinds, and uh, uh, you could even see the rainbow through these, like, blinds. And uh, I was like, oh my goodness. So uh, I put her on my shoulders, and we walked outside, and Elsa just went nuts. Um, and she was like, it's my first rainbow, it's my first rainbow. I was like, wow, oh, yeah, it's great. And then she said, <laughs> this is like after, I don't know, we had seen it for like a minute or two. And she said, daddy, daddy. And she had this giggly voice, I can't stop looking at it. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's, this must be really amazing. And it was, it was. But get this, as I was having her on my shoulders, had the the, the epitome of joy and delight sitting on my shoulders. Um, you know, what is a Christian dad supposed to say to his kid when he sees a rainbow? Um, well, God put that up there, and uh, it's a reminder for us that he won't judge us anymore, and he, he loves us, and, and his son took the, you know, punishment for us, and this kind of thing. Um, and all those things were like in my mind, but you can imagine uh, these things don't happen very often downtown uh, where there's amazing sky views, and there's a bunch of people out and, uh, and I was just, I was frozen in fear because I didn't want to like, you know, impose my worldview on everybody else, um, saying, you know, God made that and, uh, you know, that's his work of reminding us that he's good and kind and has judged the earth and in the middle of, you know, campus area, I just got, I got frozen with fear. And this, this, this happens all the time to us. You know, we might be struck with a great work of God, but because of our fear of people, we just freeze. And we lose the joy because we are too scared to share it. When in reality, it might have been, and I, I, I did mention something about God, but it, it was kind of a hush-hush voice, um, it might have been if I would have been nice and loud and said, Elsa, I'm so excited too, and this is God's work, um, that somebody around me might have been taught or instructed or encouraged in truth and righteousness. But many times we allow fear of people to keep our joy in check because we don't want to come across giddy or childish or naive. So... So observing God's work, attributing his greatness to his character and his, his, his majesty allows us to worship him most deeply. So let's, let's move on to, to verses 2 through 9. Okay? God's works studied uh, is, the, is the first uh, uh, entry here. In verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all those who delight in them. I know that sounds really bookish and uh, cold, but uh, simply put, we study what we delight in, okay? Okay, if you ask any of the kids back in, uh, in the back here um, what they know about Legos or Pokemon or Disney princess dolls, um, they're going to talk your ear off. Why? Because well, they know a lot about them, okay? And they've, they've invested themselves heavily in studying the, these things, okay? They could tell you anything about everything about those three categories, okay? And, and we do the same thing as adults. We're not, we're not 
Um, I don't know what the word is. We're not um, different from them, okay? Um, uh, some of you might be into sports, and you know every single player on the team that you like. Some of you might be into music or, or, or um, some particular uh, um, songwriter, and you know the lyrics to those songs perfectly, okay? Uh, some of you might be into a certain author, and you could, you could tell me everything that he's wrote and, and how he wrote it and why he wrote it and what he was doing when he was writing it. Um, we, we really study the things that we really like. Our heart demands our brains to follow it. Okay? And so if your heart really wants to know about the Olympics, you're going to go on the internet and start doing some research. Okay? So why, 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 why would a husband spend time with his wife? Well, he, he delights in her, and so he studies her. He asks her questions. He finds out what her history is like. He, he, he really invests himself into her. And so it is that those who delight in the works of the Lord, they study them. Okay? So as an indictment, if we're not studying the works of the Lord, then we might not be all that interested in them. And it might stymie our ability to praise him. Okay? The, the, the nice thing is, the works of the Lord are pretty, pretty vast. So if you're not, if you're not uh, excited about cloud formation like I am, uh, that's okay. There's, there's more to, to study. Um, uh, let, let's just uh, name a, a few here. So chemistry, physics, math, and economies, uh, economics. Uh, they overwhelm us with the complexities that God is using to sustain the visible creation. Astronomy, oceanography, meteorology, that's my favorite, all speak of the magnitude and the scale upon which God works. History, sociology, anthropology, biology, pharmacy, medicine, psychology, all of these point us to the care and the detail in which God has crafted the intricate reality of the human experience. And in a unique subset of God's created order, communication, linguistics, poetry, literature, journalism, theater, music, dance, and rhetoric all have been given to us by God to powerfully communicate his greatness from one culture to another and from one generation to another. So all of these things are God's great work that he actively sustains moment by moment that he's created for us to know him. If you study any one of those, or, or the bajillion more that I haven't named, it can be for you a study in the great works of God, and a source or means of you deeply worshiping him. And so there's these kind of secular, what we deem as secular studies, and there's also redemptive studies okay so while the study of non-redemptive aspects of creation can drive us to awe in god um, the psalmist here probably has in mind god's redemptive acts he mentions um food in verse five okay you're thinking well food he, he's provided food how is that redemptive okay i just ate breakfast this morning how is that redemptive uh well it might not have been um but but in in the old testament Okay? God provides food for a people. And if 
if you're putting together your biblical theology, um, the food provided for the nation of Israel, his covenant people, was manna, okay? And it, and it revealed to them his kind character that he was going to provide for them even since they left Egypt, okay? And they're like, ah, oh, in Egypt we had onions, okay? Um, well, I'm going to provide for you manna, okay? And that will be sufficient for you as a people. And I'm going to preserve you, my redemptive people, in which my, the seed of the woman that's going to crush the snake, I'm going to preserve you through manna, through food, okay? That's why it's redemptive, and that's why it's mentioned in verse 5. He mentions this covenant in, in verse 5 as well. And the covenant probably, oh, there's a few covenants in the Old Testament, probably this one's reveal, uh, referring to the, the covenant given at Mount Sinai. Okay? Part of God's redemptive plan for the nation of Israel, the covenant given at Mount Sinai. And then finally, verse 6, the deliverance of the nations into their hands. Okay? Okay, this is not a celebration of war. This is, this is merely God, the psalmist, reminding himself that God provided the promised land to the people of Israel just, just like he said, it was 400 years and then the, the, the judgment came upon the, the nations of Canaan through the hand of the Israelites. Okay? And they were given the promised land just like God had, had promised to Abraham. Okay? So each one of these things point to God's work in redeeming the Israelites out of the clutches of the Egyptians and into the blessings that were to be had in, uh, uh, under God's good rule in the promised land. Okay? And just as the psalmist points to old covenant realities, we, on the other side of the cross, can point to new covenant realities. Through Christ's work, God has provided us a new exodus from out of the, uh, from out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. He's provided us new food. And he doesn't daily shower us with manna, but he's given us Christ. And as we partake of the bread that Jesus offers us through his sacrifice, we will never go hungry. We need no other spiritual food for our nourishment. We've been given, thirdly, a new kind of land, a new Jerusalem that will be the place of eternal rest for all the redeemed. So these are all good gifts that we experience. And as we study the Bible, as we engulf ourselves in these promises of the redeemed to the redeemed, we find ammunition or fuel for our worship. Now, if you look at three, uh, verses 3 and 4, a curious um, phrase is put in here. So he says, Full of splendor, this is verse 3, full in splendor uh, uh, and majesty is Yahweh's work, and his righteousness endures forever. This is, the, this, is the, this is the curious phrase here. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and, and merciful. And I was just thinking over these two verses, I was thinking, wasn't it a bit weak for God to have to cause his wondrous works to be remembered? I mean, if they're all that great, wouldn't, be, uh, wouldn't we be able to remember them uh, without much prompting? 
It's the insignificant experiences in the life that we need reminded of. I, I, I don't need reminded of the day I was married to Lene. I don't need reminded of uh, the day that Elsa was born. Okay, I don't need reminded of the day that she took her first steps. So why in the world does God have to cause his works to be remembered? I think the answer is at least twofold. One practical and one spiritual. Okay? Practically speaking, um, I personally have not lived long. Okay? I, I have not lived uh, to see the overwhelming majority of God's works. Period. Okay? He works on a much larger time frame than the 70 years that most of us will live. So um, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't experience God's creation Okay? I wasn't there. Um, I, I wasn't there when, when God gave his covenants to Abraham and, and Noah and, 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 and David. Okay? I, I just wasn't there. I haven't experienced 40 years of wandering after a, an amazing um, exodus from Egypt and walking through you know, two mounds of water on dry land through the roads. I just haven't, haven't experienced that. And I, I, I know uh, none of us have experienced the, the future promises, you know, of, of um, glorification and of, of Jesus coming down and, 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 and righting every wrong and, and making all things under uh, his rule. Okay, so, so there's so much in redemptive history of, of God's works that we're just so unfamiliar with um, in, in many tangible ways. So in that sense, it's easy to forget God's works. And, and the second reason, um, the more spiritual reason, is that as a race, uh, we're in rebellion against our king. If, if you've read your Bible, you understand that we don't like God as a race, okay? And so our flesh within us and the culture that we're just surrounded by pushes back against this idea that God's works are great. In fact, many of you might have uh, heard or read even uh, this book that came out in 2007 uh, by Christopher Hitchens called God is Not Great. Okay, it was, a, it was a number one New York's bestseller, okay? It was number two on Amazon right below, I think, some Harry Potter book, okay? Which is impressive for uh, a, a, a book of that nature to reach such a high selling rate. So everyone around us gets this idea that God's not great. And if you are like amazed with the clouds, you're a nut. Okay, when you say, God's amazing, look at the clouds. Okay. You see, if God wasn't vigorously causing his works to be remembered, they would die the death of myth, or worse yet, the death of disdain. And it is my contention that if his works were not uh, were to vanish from our memory, then we would be a race lost without a shred of hope. And so far from being egotistical, ah, oh, they've got to remember my works, you know. Yahweh, the great one, is gracious and merciful when he reminds us proactively of his mighty works. Okay. For that we can be so thankful. And so, so what are some ways that God does this? How does he remind us? So one we've already just drilled on. Uh, he demonstrate, demonstrates through creation. And sometimes we get, we get numb to this. You know, the sun's, you know, this huge ball of fire. 
93 million miles away, and it heats us up, which is incredible, like a campfire. Um, incredible work of God, okay? We see seasons come and go, and we, we sometimes lose the significance. But every now and again, God wallops us with a good one, right? So he gives us a big blizzard, you know, or some, some flood or a big fire or something like that. We're like, whoa, we're really small. You're really great. Okay? So those are good gifts and ways that God causes his name to be remembered, his works to be remembered. Reminds us where, we're, where, we, where we stand in the, 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 the priority list of creation. We're down here, God's up here. A second way that God reminds us of his majestic works is regular religious practice, okay? cultic things, okay? And I don't mean like the occult, I mean like communion, okay? Baptism. The Old Testament saints, you know, they did a lot more of this. So they had sacrifices and Passover and feast festivals reminding them of how God delivered them. Um, even the, the clothes they wore, you know, every thread on their clothes, you know, their clothes reminded them, we're not like other people. We've been chosen by God, okay? We don't have that, but we do have certain practices that remind us on a regular basis of God's works. He died for us that we might live. Baptism reminds us that he has plunged us, uh, he's taken us from death and he has brought us back into new life. When we come here every morning, we remember this is the Lord's day. This is the day that he rose from the dead. Okay? And a third way that he does this is actually a very important one. And it's the, 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 the phenomena of story or narrative. Okay? And I can't stress how important this one is to preserving the great acts of God from one generation to another. The Bible is one big story of God winning a fallen world back to himself. It's a story of intrigue and suspense, of patience and mercy, of wrath and judgment, and of, of, of heartbreak and treason. But it's also a story of victory and hope and restoration. And the gospel, what we call the gospel, that's the key that makes sense of all the mystery that we see and read in the Old Testament. Well, how's God gonna, how's gonna God, God gonna save these people? And the gospel tells us how he's going to accomplish this great rescue plan. And so, as an aside, moms and dads, do not undersell the importance of story time. Okay? Bedtime stories are a divine work of preserving God's ma majesty. Okay? From one generation to the other. Okay? You telling your kids how great God is through like the Jesus book story Bible or something like that is huge. Many of your life experiences have probably been formed by some story. So please continue to value, I don't know if you do in the morning or the afternoon or evening, but continue to value that story time with your kids. So there it is. God preserves the memory of his mighty acts through kind and constant reminders to his people. And this in itself is a glorious work of God and fuel for our praise. So the rest, uh, the majority of the rest of the psalm, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, and 9, uh, are spent actually illustrating and stating the greatness of God. God's works are described as eternal, 
powerful, faithful, and just, trustworthy, and upright, holy, and awesome. Those are actual adjectives used there. Those are great adjectives. Many of these works we've already kind of touched on. And now, if, if you're feeling it difficult to kind of um, feel or know the gravity, the, the greatness of God, uh, let's, let's look at a few passages. So let's kind of practice what we just preached, okay? Um, I'm going to kind of read through some, some stuff here. So Revelation 1, 17, the end, through 18. Jesus says, um, I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's pretty awesome. There's, there's no one else who can claim that. Okay? I can make dead people live. Jesus can do that. And to prove it, he, he's one of the dead people who, who now lives. And he doesn't just hold the keys to physical vitality or physical de decay. Consider Ephesians 2, verses 1, 3, and 4. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, this is a spiritual death. You were dead, not physically, in your trespasses and sins. We all previously lived, alongside the disobedient, in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children of wrath. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive. Alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead. He's emphasizing, you were dead. He's been, we've been made alive in the Messiah. You are saved by grace. We sang about this. Grace. It's amazing grace. We were dead, but now we're alive. There's a reason why New Testament writers state that the, the, the work of God in our salvation is a demonstration of his power. Sometimes you read it and you're like, the gospel is God's power on display. How's that work? Peter says that it's God's divine power that's granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through knowing him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And Paul emphatically states that it's the gospel, the reality that gave you new life in Christ, it's the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And by the way, later on, he says, while you were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly, okay? So we're setting up a power system, okay? We are weak and dead and powerless, and God is alive and strong and powerful to make alive. And so while you might not feel it today, when you woke up this morning, you put your feet on the floor, you might not have been struck with this greatness, but it's not a problem with the work of God, okay? It's a problem with us. Our numbed experience is not a true reflection of God's greatness. Rather, our insensibility is an indication of the limits that we have as pre-glorified beings. Those in God's throne room, okay, 
possibly glorified beings here, they are perpetually intrigued with the great wonder of our salvation and cry out, this is recorded in Revelation 5, Jesus, you are worthy to take ownership of all creation because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and nation and people. You see, in the economy, in the economy of creation, the saving work of Jesus on your and my behalf singularly qualifies him to be the sole ruler of the universe. Yes. That's how amazing a feat God thinks of his son's work. And as we struggle hard to treasure the work of God, so we're pre-glorified, really struggling. As we struggle to treasure the work of God in our redemption, as we do that, we are better equipped to worship him just like they do. And maybe you might even say better than they do because we have been given this experience of, of, of death. We were dead and now we're alive. So what's a response? Verse 10, so in conclusion. What's a response to all these mighty acts of God? Well, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise is endures forever. So he ends with a description of a person who gets it. Okay. So who is the man who understands what's real and what's true of reality? Well, a man who beholds the work of God is awestruck with his greatness. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to be just awestruck in his greatness. And, and he praises God's name forever. This man, described here, is a man who has scratched, begun to scratch the surface of wisdom. And so may it be for our church. May we be given understanding to see and study the glorious works of God. And return our inward delight in him back to him in joyful adoration. If you want more of the same of this, just read chapter 112 or Psalm 112. It's a continuation of all these ideas. So don't let this, don't let this, these ideas end here. Just continue reading 112. So let's go ahead and pray. God, I am so thankful that um, you haven't left us alone. You've given us a word to speak truth to us. Um, God, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shameful thing as... Um, beautifully created creatures have been created in your image um, to have to admit that we don't get you we don't we don't treasure you like you ought to be treasured we don't spend time with you like like we should we're not we're not struck with your glory your works your power um, but God we want to and, and we know that you're, you're with us and that you give us the power to praise you. You cause your works to be remembered in our lives. So we want that and we want you to, to just work on us like, like, a, like a potter works on his piece. And we want you to form us into a, a beautiful vessel that rightly reflects your glory 
in Philippians, or um, can't can't think of it right now, but you say we should walk worthy of the gospel. We should so walk worthy of that great truth that you've rescued and redeemed us. So God, give us strength and power and endurance to continue fighting for that knowledge, continue fighting for that experience of joy, continue fighting together to praise your name together as a congregation. And may you be glorified in that struggle. Amen.